0: It was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. I love this fact they sort of stop for lunch halfway through the rebellion. He actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Welcome
1: to History Gems, where my guest today is the uber glamorous and talented
0: Rebecca Radiel yes I will steal the crown jewels probably the most recognizable bits of you know bling in the country he wants to steal them and he thinks he can he can make money out of that Thomas Blood's brought brought before him Colonel Blood Um, and the king is endeared to him um, because he's a bit cocky and he says that he says to Charles that the, the crown jewel you know expected the crown jewels to be more impressive they're not worth the hundred thousand pounds he thought they're they're literally um you know only about six worth about six thousand (laughs) pounds (laughs) um this period is full of so many crazy episodes i mean shortly after you get the the whole furore over titus Oates and um the popish plot and things and that's basically one you know random man saying that there's a, a a papist conspiracy going on um, to assassinate Charles II. And he points, this is Titus Oates, so he points the finger at lots of different perpetrators. Loads of people lose their lives. Now, Rebecca has many
1: strings to her, bow because not only has she written a fantastic book, 1666, Plague, War and Hellfire, but she's also a specialist factual television producer and writer. She also runs the online history magazine, The History Vault. She's the co-founder of her own history festival, HistFest, and she also has her own brilliant podcast, Killing Time. Rebecca's amazing, so it's gonna be a real treat chatting to her today. Hi Rebecca, welcome to History Gems, and thank you so much for giving up your time to chat to me today.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm I'm really excited to be involved in your um, brand new podcast series. So thank you.
1: Oh, no, it's a
0: huge pleasure
1: to have you here. And you're going to be talking to us today about a bold attempt to steal the crown jewels from the Tower of London, the capital's notoriously strong fortress in 1671. So I thought it would be good if we could just start by um, perhaps you giving us a bit of background and telling us Bit about London in 1671. So, you know, who was king and perhaps a bit about what life was like in the capital.
0: Yeah, sure. So, London at this time had a population of around, I mean, it's debated, it always is, but around 500,000 people. Um, So, in 1671, um, the inhabitants of London have already had a pretty rough time of it over the past decade. They've experienced um, a a change of regime. So there was the the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 with Charles II um, returning to England and taking the throne, becoming the king of England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and also France, but obviously not France um, in reality. Um, So Charles is king. They have suffered um, the great plague, which um, kind of saw off around 100,000 people in sixteen sixty five. They've had the Great Fire of London, um, which happened the year after, and then there's also been a war with with the Dutch, which has um meant that Londoners regularly have been hearing cannon fire um from within the city. And particularly if they go if, if they could if they wander outside um, to Greenwich and Greenwich Hill, for example, they can where the observer, observatory is now um they'd be able to hear the cannon fire particularly well and in actual fact in 1671 i think the the observatory is on the cusp of being built the one that we know yeah, okay. um, what else is going on what what's going down they've got the theaters there so it's all you know it's quite exciting we've got people like nell Gwynne, um afra ben the playwright um she's her plays are about to be um uh, released on stage so um it's it's an exciting time the royal society was established so you've got figures like um isaac newton um christopher wren and um robert hook kind of bobbing around the city as well um, and because of the great fire most of the city of london so that's the main kind of walled area in in the center um, most of that is a is kind of like a building site, so there's lots of work going on. St Paul's Cathedral is just in the early stages of being put together, um, so it's a busy time in a city that's um, changing rapidly. Um, but one place that's 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 the same and has barely changed and looks quite similar even today is um, the Tower of London.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the Tower, if we think about
0: it, had a
1: reputation. Um, by this time, as being a place of imprisonment and even torture and execution, but it was also home to the crown jewels. And I think that the crown jewels they weren't that old in 1671, were they?
0: No, they've had they'd had um, they they were fairly new. They had to be um, made again when um, Charles came back to the well, re- returned to England because they'd. Been lush, uh, lushed, What am I talking about? That's that's not a word. <laughs> They've been lost <laughs> or um, sold off or um, you know melted down during the period after the civil wars um, when Cromwell was in charge and um, you know England was was not a. Was was not a monarchical country, Um so they had to be remade, kind of in a bit of a rush, really, for Charles for his coronation. And um, so his scepter and um, all the rest of it were were fresh and, and new. And um, yes, so oh. there are these new cranials, but they are being held in the Tower of Tower of London, um, and they're being looked after by the the keeper. Of the crown jewels, who is a man named um, Talbot Edwards? That's his Talbot name. Edwards. He's the keeper of the crown jewels at this time.
1: Ah, okay. And he—I mean, how well guarded were they then by Talbot Edwards? Was he—I don't know. Were they I, presumably, obviously, they were under they were under lock and key. But were there any other kind of—I don't know—precautions that were put in place to keep
0: them safe? Well, the Tower of London was a fairly safe ish place anyway. I mean, it was a place that had always been guarded. So they were kept in the basement of um of the of the tower, um, and protected by, you know, the usual contraptions. Um, there's a, supposedly a metal grill that was keeping them safe. But as the fact that there was a keeper of the crown jewels meant that there was always someone that should at least be um guarding them and making sure that they were safe and um you know, not not at risk of, of being stolen or anything like that. Um, mm. But of and course, also- he became the weak link, didn't he? Well, yes, exactly.
1: And we, we're going to come on to that. Um, but before I ask you about that, was it normal for visitors to be able to see the crown jewels
0: at this time? Yes, it was normal. And people did people were able to see them um, if they were friends or if they had an inn. I think if you were friendly with people like Talbot Edwards then you were allowed to that's how our our main character Thomas Blood got in to see them through striking up a friendship with them um, with Talbot Edwards
1: yes so can you tell us a little bit about the famous colonel blood
0: yeah he was a bit of a a bit of a bounder really i mean he's <laughs> and um, he's one of those those strange figures that has an extraordinary life despite, despite the fact that he's living through extraordinary times as well so he kind of changes sides during the civil wars when he sees that it looks like the parliamentarians are going to win so he he flips over to their side then he becomes a kind of on the face of it a kind of ardent um parliamentarian and supporter of cromwell he tries to seize areas of dublin back from um back from the royalists so it's um he has a, an interesting time then and then i mean he's not from a he's not from a poor family either he's the son of an mp so he's from a kind of he he's got pedigree I, I suppose to an extent um he moves back and forth he he ends up in london in the end during during the restoration um and then he decides randomly that he wants to steal the crown jewels um he thinks that's probably the best way to make him some money i think he's just someone that likes adventure i think he's um yeah as i say a, a bit of a bounder um so a charmer yeah. i think so i think so he's he's it's hard to place his motivation to be perfectly honest because it is quite an audacious thing to think yes i will steal the crown jewels probably the most recognizable bits of, you know, bling in the country. He wants to steal them and he thinks he can he can make money out of that. So yeah, it's um it's a strange one.
1: That's really interesting. And actually I had no idea that he was a, a Civil War turncoat, so to speak, yes. as well. So <laughs> Yeah. Um but can you tell us then a little bit about what happened <clears throat> on that evening in sixteen seventy one. And you know, you already mentioned that blood had Befriended Talbot Edwards, so you know, presumably it wasn't that difficult for him to
0: gain access to the tower. Yeah, so he he struck up this friendship, um, and he'd almost been grooming or, or wooing um, Edwards for for a while. So they'd he'd he tried to befriend not just not just him, but also his his family. So he'd brought his. know he'd he'd posed as a parson, for example, (laughs) to try and you know to to try and kind of endear himself to to Edwards and make himself seem more trustworthy. He'd feigned illness at some point and his and Edward's wife had had cared for him. He'd given her a gift in gratitude and thanks. He'd promised his he'd promised Edwards that he had a wealthy nephew that would be interested in marrying Edward's daughter. Um, All of these things to try and ingratiate himself into into um edward's life and and build up trust um and yeah i mean he even he even actually he even brought his nephew along along with him at one point and i say nephew in inverted commas here because um he wasn't really um, so he arrived he he arrived with the nephew on the 9th of may 1671 um and while the nephew was um chatting away to the daughter Blood asked Edwards whether he could go and have a look at the um the, the crown jewels. So he, he was he was led down there and then he kind of I don't know what it must have felt like for, for Edwards, but Blood kind of switched in a moment and um uh whacked him unconscious and then stabbed him as well. Um so he he tried to grab the crown jewels after um Edwards was left unconscious. Um obviously you can imagine it was it would have been a bit difficult so he did this he grabbed the crown the scepter and the orb and took them out the crown was a bit too big for the bag that he brought with him so he whacked it with a mallet to flatten it put it in (laughs) he stuffed the orb this big round ball um down his breeches but then also (laughs) the scepter was too long so blood's um brother-in-law who was there with him as well tried to saw the scepter in half (gasps) um it's just crazy um and they obviously they tried to make a run for it but then edwards came to and started shouting you know there's treason the crown jewels are, are, are being stolen um and even though blood tried to to escape, by the way, Blood has got an amazing name for a, um, a, a jewel thief, hasn't he? Yeah, um, sure so, has. <laughs> even though he was trying to escape, he was captured in the end. Um, he tried to shoot one of the guards um, during the process of being captured, but he was taken into custody and then declared. You know, he he didn't he he didn't deny what had happened. I mean, how could he? But that he declared that he wouldn't speak to anybody except the king. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, what really strikes me as well is that even though, as you said, he'd really cultivated this friendship with Tolbert Edwards, is that he hadn't really thought through the practicalities of it. I mean, trying to saw the scepter no. in half and <laughs> stuffing the orb down your breeches.
0: It's, it's crazy. I mean, I guess maybe they did a little bit because they obviously brought a saw with them. Um, oh, yeah, but true. <laughs> it's um yeah it's crazy but then i guess you... <sighs> I don't know maybe maybe he was just of the mindset that he would kind of wing it <laughs> and be able to to you know pull it off somehow, or maybe he always knew that it was never gonna work, and he he wanted an audience with Charles I mean there's so many different possibilities as to why why he did what he did, although if he wanted an audience with a king, it was a bit of a risky way to go about it, i suppose <laughs> well,
1: you, well yeah, I mean that's one way to get his attention um but okay, so thinking about that. Does Charles actually grant him this audience?
0: Yeah, he does. He he he's intrigued. So he does. He I mean, he hears about it and he he's intrigued. And the fact that he's asking to speak to the king. I mean, the king's Charles is of the kind of character that he does. I mean, occasionally he comes down hard on on people, and, and he, you know that's that's been documented. But he's also interested in unusual characters, and he's got a lot of time for scoundrels and um you know people that that um have got something interesting going on with their lives i mean um so he he does grant him an audience and it's not just king charles but it's also um prince rupert of the rhine as well he's a really important figure in the restoration period and also actually earlier during the civil wars he's famous for going to war with his his pet dog boy um oh, that's yeah. a that's a different story yeah <laughs>
1: Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, isn't that the dog that wanders out onto Master Moor and is killed?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but he also becomes, the dog becomes this kind of um, figure in um, in parliamentarian propaganda. He's just, you know, he's seen as basically like Prince Rupert is like the devil and this this dog is like his... his um, I don't know, a servant of the devil type thing, but it's oh. um it, it's really it's probably one of the most famous dogs in seventeenth century history, if not all history. Um, but that is that is I guess that is a bit of an aside, but it does give an in, insight into the um the characters of these people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Um so also alongside Prince Rupert and and King Charles is um the Duke of York, James the Duke of York, who would later be James the Second. Um and other members, kind of members of the court as well, are there. I mean, I guess they're all just interested. They want they want to hear what this man has to say because it's such an audacious thing to have attempted to do. Mm. Um, and when the king's talking to him, he, you know, um, Thomas Bloods brought brought before him, Colonel Blood, um, and the king is endeared to him um because he's a bit cocky and um, he says that he says to Charles that the the crown jewel you know expected the crown jewels to be more impressive and they're not worth the hundred thousand pounds he thought they're they're literally um you know only about six worth about six thousand um. pounds <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, so he's disappointed with with the jewels anyway, so they were they weren't really worth the, the attempt, but then Charles does warm to him and offers to give him his life um, instead of giving him a harsh um, sentence, you know. I mean, for for that kind of crime, it is treason, so the sentence would have been death. But, yeah, so he makes this remarkable um, gesture and um, allows him to to live, and um, Colonel Blood then says, well, I'll, I'll endeavour to deserve it, sire. Um, and so he's not just pardoned for what... He does. He's um, actually granted lands in Ireland as well um, and kind of became a bit of a character during the restoration, was seen at court and, um, you know, lived a fairly um, comfortable life after that. Um, He was taken under the patronage of um, the Duke of Buckingham, again, another big restoration figure, um, died in 16... 80 um you know at the age of 62 which is young by today's standards but it's not you know it's not remarkably young um in restoration standards um so yes i mean that's the that's the story of of Colonel blood the crown jewels have not been stolen since i, I don't believe unless someone's doing it today right now um <laughs> hopefully not <laughs> yeah um, so that's that's him that's that's his life so it's um Yeah, a very random story that comes from a very random period and I think even by the standards of the day he was a bit of an unusual character. Um,
1: Yeah, and I mean, I I just, I can't believe that not only did Charles grant blood his life, but then he manages to ingratiate himself in in higher society and it's almost like Uh in some ways it seems like he's
0: being rewarded for his audacity. He is, he is. Um, and I think that's all about Charles's character, really. I mean, any other monarch would have, you know, straight away, they would have um, made sure that an example was made. So that didn't happen again. Um, so yeah, it's it's really unusual. But then this period is full of so many crazy episodes. I mean, shortly after you get the the whole furore over Titus Oates and um the popish plot and things and that's basically one you know random man saying that there's a a, a papist conspiracy going on um to assassinate Charles II and he points this is Titus Oates so he points the finger at lots of different perpetrators loads of people lose their lives and it turns out that it's just it's a pack of lies um that Titus Oates has spouted but it's all i mean i don't really know his motivation but i think he kind of liked the attention so that i don't know colonel blood always in my mind is is part of him and titus oates are quite closely knitted together because they they these two random men that do random things i mean i yeah. think titus Oates cause more harm but yeah it's a, a strange period and i why I, why i like studying it i guess no and i can understand that and just with
1: titus Oates, i was just going to ask um is is charles does charles come down harder on him than he does on blood Is is he executed, or is that have I made that up?
0: No, he's not executed. He he he's not. He um he, I mean, there's loads of people. I'm just trying to find out the number of people that were executed as a consequence of him because I think it was in it was about eleven um that died as a result of the Popish Plot. Really? Um, Yeah, but he's he's not he's not executed. He he goes he goes to prison afterwards. Um, but he. You know, he lives until 17, 1704, I think, maybe 1705. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's not – he's not – because I guess that so many people had died as a result, it kind of would have looked, looked bad. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But me, I'm just trying to see how many people he was responsible for. So he made 43 allegations. There, was, there were quite a few people, and this was around the time of the – infamous um Judge Jeffries as well, who was who was kind of notorious in history for passing really harsh sentences mm. on um on people.
1: It seems that Charles II almost had I don't know what the right word is, he almost had um not a tolerance, but almost like an appreciation of
0: rogues. Yeah, I guess I yeah, I think he I think he could just like recognise that there was you know something about him, and he did like interesting people. I mean that that's why he he surrounded himself with mistresses, as we know about Charles Charles II. But it wasn't. Um, I mean, there's lots of bad things to say about Charles II. The, at the you know the top of the list is the fact that he was the king that um, started state backed slavery. So you know that's that's not great. Um, but one of the things that he did do in terms of his immediate sphere, he um, he surrounded himself by a lot of women, um, and as mistresses, yes, but he also spoke. You know, he he treated them as equals. Um, I say equals. He treated them. You know, he gave them a level of equality that other monarchs hadn't really done before. Um, yeah. So, and he listened to them, and they so much so actually that they were often accused of, you know, t- um, telling him what to do and um, engaging a little bit to him too much in politics. In fact, there's um, there's a famous poem from the Earl of Rochester, which talks about the crown jewels and his mistresses. Um, and I don't know if swearing's allowed in this podcast. Yeah, go but, for it. <laughs> so the poem, if I remember correctly, goes like this, his scepter and his prick are of a length, and she may sway the one who pl- who plays with the other. Um Kind of sums up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, I love that. That's really good. That's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I've and, never uh, heard of that.
0: <laughs> yes, from the notorious Earl of Rochester, who is was known for writing lots of dirty poetry and um, satirical poetry. Um, Goodness me!
1: <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, just one final question. Then, I think what you've you've painted really, really vivid picture of Charles as being a real people person as well which which I I really love and I think he seems like quite an accessible monarch um, hmm. so do you think this this kind of love of people I guess in some ways is is one of the reasons why
0: Charles is so
1: lenient towards blood
0: I don't know and I've I've said this before it's really it's actually I mean it's hard to get into the psyche of someone like blood but yeah. it's, I find always find it really hard to get into the psyche of um Charles II as well I think he's he's I don't know I, I don't like to like put labels on people from the past and you know as well as I do that it's not it's not helpful usually to do that but there is something a bit sociopathic about Charles II and um, I wonder whether he saw any point or any gain in um Coming down hard on blood, um, I think he was interested in him. I think he's, in, you know, was interested in lots of lots of people for different reasons. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm rambling here, and these are. It's probably not good to have rambled thoughts when it comes to talking about the psychiatry of historical <laughs>
1: figures. <laughs> it's very interesting, though. Really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. It has been absolutely fascinating Rebecca and thank you so much and I would just like to know if you are able to tell us anything about what you're working on at the moment
0: oh um Yes, I'm, I am writing, well, I have been for a long while and you know this, <laughs> <laughs> like a million books in between me writing my first book and my second book, yes. but I'm writing my second book at the moment and it's, um, it's called God's Throne and it's, um, it's not about a loo, it's about the um, <laughs> Stuart dynasty from 1603 to 1714, um, but hopefully that will be out one day if I can get into an archive.
1: Oh. that's super exciting so we we don't know yet when when it will be out
0: well yeah hopefully 2022 but I mean it it depends I mean nothing is set in stone these days is it really I mean if we have another pandemic who knows what's going to happen I don't think I want to put a book out during a pandemic so who who knows fingers crossed 2022 though brilliant and where can people
1: find you if they want to find out more about you and your work Oh,
0: um, well, I don't know if, if they will after this, but... <laughs> you <They> can, will. <laughs> you, can, you can find me. Um, I'm on Twitter and my Twitter handle is at Rebecca Redeal. Um, so you can find me there and from there i I usually tweet lots of things so you can find where i put other stuff (laughs) as
1: well oh that's amazing rebecca thank you so much for joining me today it's been wonderful to talk to you and very very best of luck with your book and with all of the other projects that you're working on at the moment
0: thanks nicola it's been been a joy
1: Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. It's been a real privilege learning more about Colonel Blood, who's gone down in history as the man who nearly got away with stealing the crown jewels. Rest assured, they're extremely well protected. Approximately 3 million people flock to see them each year and they're still regularly used by the royal family today. Rebecca's book, 1666, is available now, as is her brilliant podcast, Killing Time. If you enjoyed this podcast please press subscribe and leave us a rating and review and don't forget to tune in for the next episode of History Gems.